welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we return to the prof, Howard Hendricks. He is most likely to end up in prison, was the assessment of his fifth grade teacher in Philadelphia. Once, she even tied him to his seat with a rope and taped his mouth shut. Yet, everything changed for that boy when he met his sixth grade teacher. He introduced himself to Miss No, and she told him, I've heard a lot about you, but I don't believe a word of it. Those words would change his life forever. She made him realize for the first time that someone cared. People are always looking for someone to say, hey, I believe in you, he said. And in his more than 60 years as a professor, he believed in his students. His message today is on discipleship. The student's sense of humor is often quite perverted. Some time ago, I walked into the classroom and some wag had written on the chalkboard these words. There once was a student of Esser whose knowledge grew lesser and lesser. It at last grew so small, he knew nothing at all, so they made him a seminary professor. <laughs> I've discovered that students have ways of seeing to it that you do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. So I'm uh, very encouraged. My sagging ego has been greatly bolstered by your reception to these sessions, and I assure you, it has been for me a real delight and a personal privilege. Now this afternoon, I want to discuss with you the subject, How Christ Trained Leaders. This morning we looked at how Christ taught learners, and there is a very close relationship. Now let me disabuse your minds at the outset. Our approach this afternoon will, in the nature of the case, be selective, not exhausted. I teach a course on the subject at the seminary, and every year I teach it, I am more impressed by the fact that we are merely scratching the surface. Fifteen weeks, two hours every week, thirty hours. So I assure you, I have a rather ambitious task to boil this down in forty-five minutes. The reason for this is that the process is more important than the product. And it's for this reason that I would like to recommend three books for your reading that will help stretch your thinking and will give you some input. The first book I would recommend is a book by A. B. Bruce, entitled The Training of the Twelve. That's a masterpiece of exegetical work with profound implications for anyone interested in disciple-making. I assure you, it is not the kind of book you want to read when you're babysitting watching the New England Patriots in an exciting game. <laughs> he 
eating a box of candy. I think I have read this book now for the 39th time. And I haven't come back to it yet. But what, I wonder if I read it. It is that kind of a book. And I never buy and put in my library any book that I can read on one reading and derive all of the value. It's too much of an investment. When I can get a book like this, that year after year continues to generate new trains of thought, that's one you want to sink your teeth into. The second book I would recommend to you is a book by H.H. H. Horn. That's spelled H-O-R-N-E, entitled The Teaching Techniques of Jesus. Herman Harrell Horn was professor at New York University. At the same time, John Dewey was professor at Columbia University. And these two men had a constant dialogue going on. Horn built all of his suppositions on biblical truth, and Dewey did not, though Dewey was an intensive study student of the life of Jesus Christ, whom he regarded as the greatest educator. But he was convinced you could not build those principles on the supernatural. And so he drenched himself with the life of Christ and then moved those principles onto an anti supernatural basis. And Horn was a very remarkable person. And he wrote that book many years ago. And the fact that it continues to be reprint and is a bestseller year after year is indication, again, of the quality of the book. Now, that book will not provide the answers for you. It will provide the questions for you. And if you will answer the questions, you will discover that you have more material than you can ever handle. A third book is a book I could wish every single person would read. It's in a paperback put out by Douglas Hyde, H-Y-D-E. Douglas Hyde, entitled Leadership and Dedication, Notre Dame Press. Douglas Hyde was a high-ranking communist who was converted to Catholicism. And he analyzes the basic principles of communism in terms of their discipling process. And the more you read this book, the more you are impressed by the fact that Lenin memorized all four Gospels word perfectly. And I have often thought, my friends, sometimes the communists are more biblical in their methodology than some of us as Christians. We failed to do our homework. And this is a thrilling book. In fact, if you ever get an opportunity to hear Mr. Hyde, don't miss the opportunity. He's not lecturing as much as he used to, but I can remember every single exposure. You'll never be the same. He's a brilliant communicator and a tremendous analyzer of the process of moving men. And I require my students to read this book and to reread it and to become mastered by its basic concepts. And I would strongly recommend it to you. 
Now, out of my years of study in this area and thinking, and particularly the things my students have built into my own life, I'd like to share with you, as time allows, basic principles which our Lord employed in the process of training leaders. And I'm praying that the Spirit of God will weave them into the fabric of your thinking. The first means Jesus Christ used, and he used it extensively, is he trained leaders by example. They were scrutinizing his life up close over a three and a half year period of time. I was reading some time ago in an educational journal, and the writer made this statement. Simple authority in the classroom no longer awes them. It is not enough that their teacher should know something. To establish his credentials to be heard, he must also be someone. Someone in, who, in whom some personal or moral way merits their attention. Students seem to be asking not what do you know, but who are you? And what do you believe in that you claim our attention? Now I'm sure you're familiar with those searching words in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1 when the disciples asked the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, that's a remarkable statement, especially if you put it on a timeline. You will discover it's quite far down the line. They had been exposed to Jesus Christ for at least a year and maybe much longer before they asked that question. Now, you know, generally speaking, as a part of our follow-up program, and I think legitimately, we say to a person now that you have come to know Christ, one of the first things you need to do is to get into the Word and establish a regular prayer time. But many times we really don't communicate. And there's a reason for it. And that is, we don't model it. A graduate student at the seminary came to me some time ago. He said, Prof, you got a few minutes? I said, I'll take a few. He said, I got a problem, and I need some help. So we went up to my office, and we sat down. He shared his problem with me, and we went to the Word, and got some insight, and we got down on our knees, and we prayed together. And when, he got up, when we got up from our knees, he said to me, you know, Prof, it just occurred to me. I've been here six years. And you're the first professor that ever prayed with me. And my friends, long after he went out of that office, the Lord was hitting me with a two-by-four. So you think that's a compliment. That is not how God used it with me. I said to myself, do you mean to tell me that it's possible that a guy can come to an evangelical seminary for six years? and never have a professor pray with him? What are we communicating to our students? 
The interesting thing is, I've discovered this is not an, an exception. This is not an isolation. I think many a young person or a new convert can come into an exposure with a group of the people of God, and in all of that time, he's quite convinced that the reason you pull off what you pull off is that you are a very gifted person, you know a lot of the scriptures, you are very talented, and you have a lot of natural ability. But he does not pick up the vibes that without me, you can do nothing. I had one of the greatest experiences, I've shared it in many places in my life, right here in this building. I think, Dr. Times, it was about two years ago when I was here for a wonderful weekend of ministry and preached here in the church on Sunday. And that night, I was staying down here at the Parker House. I came in the front door, and about five or six college kids hit me. And they said to me, uh, do you have a few minutes? I said, sure. And I thought, you know, they were going to ask me some questions. They said, no, we'd just like you to come in. We've got a group in here. We're praying for you, for the service tonight. And I went in to get down on my knees with a group of kids who really poured out their hearts to God that this would be a meaningful service and that God would break through in their life and the life of others. My friends, those young people taught me something. They taught me something that oftentimes in my ministry you would never learn. You wouldn't believe how many churches I go into. You wouldn't believe how many Christian gatherings I go into where there is never a word of prayer before that service. And you see, my friends, it's in that that we are training. And what our Lord did was to expose his disciples to a group, to a, to a situation in which every time they found him, they found him on his knees. Until after a while, they begin to put it together and say, hey, you know, this is very important, man. The Lord, teach us to pray. You see, what you are to your people is more important than what you do. Some time ago, I got all shook up over the fact that my students weren't using too many visuals. So I got them together and I said, now, man, it's very important that you use visuals in communication. We're living in a visually oriented society. Most people have watched television, you know, X number of hours before they're in first grade and X number of hours after they get through college, you know, on and on. So I decided to go out into the churches to find out what they're doing. And they're getting up in churches and saying, ladies and gentlemen, it's very important that we use visuals. Jesus Christ used visuals. We're living in a visually oriented society. Our X number of hours with no visuals. <laughs> you know what I discovered? They're doing what I'm doing, not what I'm telling them to do. Well, about the same time I was getting interested in small group involvements of various kinds, I never said a word to them. I just broke them up into groups, got them deeply embroiled in the discussion, 
you go out into churches and find out what they're doing, they get started and say, well, now the first thing we're going to have to do is to break up in some groups. So if you people will go over here. They were doing what I was doing, not what I was telling them to do. And I think that this is what Christ did. I think this is what Paul did. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. The things that you have learned and received of me, the things that you have heard and seen in me, do. They heard, they saw. And that became the modeling for their doing. You know, there's a sobering fact about being a leader. I'm sure many of you have discovered this in your own study. But there isn't a word in the New Testament about leadership. Isn't that interesting? But there's a lot in the Word of God about being a servant. That's what a biblical leader is. That's why Paul could say over and over again, in effect, you're servants for Christ's sake. See, that's a man who's not looking for the top position. That's a man who's looking for the bottom position. That's how he gets to the top. Not just from the human point of view, more importantly, from the divine point of view. I was talking to a man who hires for American Airlines. I said to him, what's your major problem today? He said, our major problem is getting stewardesses and getting personnel who are willing to serve people. Nobody wants to serve. Everybody wants to be served. Nobody wants to see that the rights of others are fulfilled. They're simply interested in, am I getting my rights? And in the process, not fulfilling their responsibility, which is to be concerned about the rights of others. But I think there's something very unique in this process. Jesus Christ, of course, did not do this for the simple reason that he was the perfect son of God. But I think every now and then I run into somebody who says to me, and a student said to me just the other day, well, Prof, well, what I want to do is what Jesus did, and that's get a crowd of men around him. I say, great, are you Jesus? Well, no. <laughs> not exactly. Well, then I said, my friend, you better build into their life with more than you, or they're dead. See, if I build into the life of my students only on the basis of myself, then my limitations become their limitations. And what I want to do eventually is to surround them with a number of people who are going to build into their life. Because each one comes with a different component to contribute in the life of that individual. May I encourage you to do this? Don't be afraid to share your failures, your weaknesses. I was teaching a course some time ago, and at the end of it, I passed out some sheets for evaluation. And I was very much impressed by the fact that 42% of the students in that class wrote on the comments of that sheet Thanks, Prof, for sharing with us some of your failures. One man put it this way, because we always think of you in terms of what you are, not in terms of what you were. 
And you see, many times this is why God gives you hassles and hang-ups and problems. That's what he said to Peter. Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. But when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And that's exactly what he did. If you don't believe it, study the life of Peter in the Gospels and then study the life and ministry of Peter in the Epistles. And everything you stereotype Peter for is exactly the opposite of what he's teaching in First and Second Peter. Patience. Well, that's just what you think of Peter for, don't you? <laughs> Great man of patience. Now, see, he's the guy with the hoof and mouth disease. God invented the statement, don't stand there, say something. So he did, profoundly, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Boy, that's a winner. <laughs> I was out in Indianapolis some time ago, and I met with a brother who is extremely gifted in the process of discipling. He not only has led many people to Christ, that's easy to get decisions. Disciples are something different. This is a man who has really built people up in the faith, and they're continuing to go on. We had breakfast together, and I said to him, uh, you know, share with me some of the things that God has taught you. And he said, well, one of the things that uh, I try to disabuse a man's mind of right at the outset is the fact that a Christian is a person without problems. I said, well, how do you do that? Well, he said, I get together with a new convert. And I said, could we get together on Wednesday for lunch? Oh, sure, wonderful. So they get together. They're eating and talking. And he says, uh, how's it going? Oh, man, great. Boy, wonderful. No, Lord. Good. Got any problems? Problem? No, man. It's tremendous. He says, uh, would you mind if I shared one of my problems with you? You have a problem? <laughs> you led me to Christ. No, 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 that's all right. And, of course, he says, the moment I begin to share my problem with him, this guy immediately identifies with it. And he says, we're off for the races. Because immediately I am informing this person, I do not expect you to be a person without problems. Problems are a part of the process of growth. So in practicing the principle of example, don't think that you have to be a perfect person to be a communicative one. People are looking for an honest person, a progressing person. That gives your example substance. A second principle I see in the life of Christ is he taught his men by participation. Now, if you've been here at Park Street or you have been in any form of Significant discipling, you know, Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, but it's a key verse. Here we read, and Jesus appointed 12 for two reasons, that they might be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. And the thing we emphasize here is the with him principle. That's the shared life. For essentially in the spiritual realm, truth is caught more than it is taught. Now let me share for you 
just a little analysis of the process of training. First thing you need to do with an individual is to tell him that which he needs to know. And today we have two good forms of doing this. First, in written form. Secondly, in the form of a tape. Whenever I try to communicate something to an individual, I find the best way to communicate it to him is to tell it to him because then I can motivate him by my own burden for the subject, by the illustrations, by the implementation. But I like to put it in print so that then he can go home and read it over. But I found a better way. Marshall McLuhan came up with some interesting studies not too long ago showing that if a person listens to a tape three times within a 24-hour period, he increases the possibility of retention from 50 to 75%. And I had a key to something a doctor friend of mine had been teaching me, but I wasn't sensitive enough to pick it up. This was when tapes were first starting to come in, and he was doing his graduate work at Mayo, and. He picked up a set of tapes and then rode out to some churches, got some other tapes. I didn't even have them myself. And he'd put them on little cassettes, and in his MG, he has a little cassette player, and so he'd plug those things in. We'd leave his home, go to the hospital. When he'd leave the hospital, go over to his office, leave his office, come back home. Wherever he went, he played these tapes. He'd play them 10, 15, 20 times. Man, he could quote me better than I could quote myself. Many times he'd say to me, hey, and brrr, he'd run off, hey, I said, that's tremendous, let me write that down. <laughs> he said, what in the world are you writing it down? I said, man, that's terrific. I said, I got it from you. <laughs> so, you know, after he listened to it 10, 15, 20 times, he'd say to me, you know, Hendricks, I'm beginning to understand what you're talking about. You know, he doesn't lack mental marble. See, nobody can gain what you need to gain from one hearing of any subject. And when you can go back over and over again, then you have the possibilities of retention, and then it starts to grip you because you see it in relationship. All right, the second thing he needs is he needs to be shown. First you tell him, then you show him. And, of course, here's where the whole concept of modeling comes in. We have a doctor in our community, Dr. Jack Cooper, is a phenomenal person in many ways, especially as a Christian, but also professionally. And he came into my class one day and he said, the, problems with the problem with you guys in the ministry is that you're long on exhortation and you're short on explanation. You're always telling us what we ought to do, but you're not telling us how to do it. So you don't simply tell a person how to share his faith, you take them out. And he watches you over on the common, sitting on a bench, sitting down with a guy, sharing the gospel. But he's not ready to go. The third stage, he has to do it. And you ought to divide that up into two divisions. First of all, in a hypothetical situation, and then in a real situation. 
That is, put him into a controlled situation where he can fall flat on his face without losing his face. I used to teach homiletics, you won't believe this, take it by faith. <laughs> and man, we used to have such exciting times. I'd give uh, students assignments. I'd say, all right, now we're going to work on illustrations. Man, I want you to go out and get a red-hot illustration and get it under your belt, because when you come in next time, I'm just liable to point you. But you're on. So they come there sitting, you know, like this. Okay, man, you're, oh, me? Right. He, got my boy. he grabs this baby like he's going to get up and walk out the window. And he starts into it, and he tells his illustration. He's batting his eyes, and finally he stops. He says, good night, prof. I forgot the punchline. <laughs> he says, let me sit down. I said, no, you can't sit down. Anybody here want him to sit down? Nobody wants him to sit down. <laughs> I said, yeah, 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 I got it. And he gives a punchline. A little smile breaks out on his face. He sits down in that chair. The whole place explodes with applause. He said, let me ask you a question, buddy. Is that the first time you've ever spoken before a group this size? Absolutely the first. That's exciting. You know why? He's in the process of learning how to speak. You should have heard some of us when we first started to preach. Maybe it's good you didn't. It's just grim to think back. How do you learn to preach? You learn to preach by preaching. You learn to witness by witnessing. I've never yet heard of a correspondence course in swimming. <laughs> you don't learn to swim by reading the books. You don't learn to swim by watching the pros go up and down in the pool. You learn to swim by diving in. That's the way you learn to witness. That's the way you learn to teach. That's the way you learn to build into the life of other people. And then you turn him loose in a real life situation, but now he's got a lot under his belt. Imagine a guy coming out of medical school who had never seen the inside of any clinical experience, never performed one piece of surgery, and you're his first patient. <laughs> Diagnosis says, well, that's your problem. So you're gonna have to have some surgery. I ask you, have you ever done this before? No, never have, but got to start somewhere. <laughs> Climb up. No way. See, these men have done hundreds, sometimes thousands of operations before they're ever turned loose to perform that procedure. But you see, many times we get a guy in the front door, lead him to Christ, push him out the back door, and say, go share your faith. My friend, you can't communicate out of a vacuum. And I'll tell you where you learn this process of telling, showing, and doing. You learn it from the cults because they're masters of training. Remember, years ago, these two guys showed up at my home on Sunday morning. You got the picture? Two guys, nicely dressed, with a little phonograph player. And I thought to myself, how sharp can you get? What do you mean you're a member of the last Methodist? Friend, you're not there, and they know it. That's a beautiful time to go visiting. So he said, can we come in? Sure, come on in. They didn't know me from Adam. So we get involved in a conversation. Every time we talk about a verse, they'd say, well, the Greek is different. So the Greek, 
What's the Greek got to do with it? Well, they said, Mr. Hendricks, apparently you don't know very much about the New Testament. <laughs> but the New Testament was written in Greek. Oh, wonderful. I said, uh, do you know Greek? Well, you know, part of our training program. I said, great. I reached over and I got my Greek New Testament and I handed it to him. I said, read it to me. Why would I given anything for a videotape? Is this guy... <laughs> so I pulled the thing out of his hand and I said, let me read it for you. And I read it for him and I said, see, it doesn't say that. And furthermore, it doesn't mean that. Well, they made short end of the conversation and they went down the street to a parked car. You know what's happening down there? This older guy is scoring this younger guy how to keep out of that kind of a rhubarb. And then they come back and they start at my next door neighbor. And I ask him the next day, which one talked? The younger one. Of course, he's the one in training. And when they get him to the place where he can go on his own, then they say, okay, now you build the training that we've built into your life, into the life of this man who will become your apprentice. That's the ministry of reproduction, of multiplication. And what an exciting one it is. It's what Jesus Christ did with his disciples. The third thing he did, he employed personalized instruction. Luke 9, 18, that passage we quoted earlier, whom do men say that I am? And then the pointed, but whom say you? that I am. And do you know what this calls for, my friend? It calls for some spontaneity and flexibility and sensitivity to the Spirit of God. I'm a little disturbed, to be honest with you, that too many of us are looking for a discipleship program that's packaged. There is no such program. Stop looking for it. The key to discipleship is not a program. It's a personalized impact, and you've got a particular individual with a particular background and a particular set of problems, and you are trying to help him in the process of growth. What does he need that will make him a maximum producer for Jesus Christ? And with some of them, we have to go back, frankly, quite far. I've had a beautiful ministry recently with a group of hippies, We've come to know Christ within the last couple years. I wish you could see these guys and their growth. I'll tell you, blow the minds of the average elder in a local church. I was up there some time ago, and one of them said, Hey, Dad, can you do me a favor? I said, If I can. I said, Can you bring some straights up here? Well, I don't know. I guess I can get a couple that are secure enough. Why? <laughs> Well, they said, before we came to know Jesus Christ, the thing that turned us off most about your generation is that you took one look at us, our hair, feet, what have you, and you went like this. And now that we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior and are growing in him, we don't want to be guilty of the same thing. And saying because a guy's hair is short or because he wears a three-button coat, we're going to go. And I thought, that's pretty profound progress. That's a lot more progress 
than many people in our church have made. And as I've gone among these tremendous kids and sensed the tremendous beat of their heart for their own generation and kids, particularly in this counterculture, I discovered that, you know, many times we have to teach them basics that obviously ought to have been taught in somebody's home a long time ago. But they didn't come out of this kind of a background. We have to teach things that obviously they should have learned as a part of the basic process of growing up, but they probably shot clean out of the saddle. And so we have to start back. I spent some beautiful time out in California at Berkeley with the Christian World Liberation Front and a tremendous group of guys who are probably making one of the most remarkable impacts for Jesus Christ in this segment of our population. And the interesting thing is to talk to them about what some of their assignments are, to teach their kids the basic principles of hygiene, to teach their kids the basic principles of work. And they have a whole program of rehabilitation to take a kid out into a rural type of setting and teach him some of the basics. And the interesting thing is when these kids come out of this type of stuff with their commitment to Jesus Christ, friend, you can't hold them down. And furthermore, they've got the discipline and the other qualities to put it all together. But it's got to be personalized. And I think in the process of discipling, one of the most exciting things that I do is to sit down and share what my men are doing. Let me give you one more. This is all we'll have time for. And that is Jesus Christ trained men by affirming them. Now, if you want to study this through, there is much scripture related to the subject, but if you want a very pregnant portion, study that familiar portion in Matthew 28, beginning at verse 26. You will find what I regard as one of the most remarkable sections of the Word of God from a discipling point of view, not only because that's the command to make disciples, the only main verb in that commission, the rest are all participles, which are dependent upon that main verb, the interesting thing is when Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission. I'll tell you when he gave it. He gave it to a group of men who just came off the biggest bust in all of their life. And that absolutely wipes me out. Because I think of myself. And I get a group of guys, and I spend a lot of time with them, building into their life, and let's suppose we're coming up to the end of the process, and I send them out to sort of test them, and they all flat, fall flat on their face. Just a total wipeout. No exceptions. See, my natural reaction is to get them together again and say, all right, man. Man, we sure totaled it on that one. Now, if this is the way you expect to win them, man, we're lost before we start. Jesus Christ never did that. He told them he'd meet them in Galilee, and that's where he met them. And the first thing he said to them is, okay, men, let's go take the world. Did it ever occur to you what that meant 
to the disciples. Coming off that tremendous failure to have the Son of God say, all right, men, here are your marching orders before I leave. What confidence Jesus Christ invested in those men. You know, I look back into my life and I was giving an assignment just the other day along this line. It's good for you to think through. I said to my men in two discipleship groups I have this semester, I said, men, I want you to do something for yourself. I want you to think through who are the people who marked your life. What are the characteristics of those people? And you know, I look back upon my life, obviously I was marked by people very deeply, very permanently, very significantly. And I find one thing in common of everyone who ever marked me, from Barnhouse to Ironside to Dr. Tenney at Wheaton and a number of others, every single one, no exception, convinced me that they believed in me. I can still remember Dr. Tenney. I started with Greek under him. It was a bad scene. He just came from Harvard. It must have been quite a disillusionment to be turned loose on people like myself. Boy, I can remember he'd work me over and over and over in a particular area until I finally couldn't forget it. And I remember coming up with questions. He'd say, young man, that's tremendous. Why don't you study that and write a book? Any other questions? <laughs> Boy, and I used to sit there, man. I can still remember him coming up after class and saying, young man, how are you going to invest your life? Hope you're not going to waste it. Some trivial stuff. See, it was largely the product of somebody who could see me more than simply in terms of what I was, but in terms of what I was to become. And this is what you need to do, just as our Savior did. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.